book on providence Though it teaches a whole lot more than uh, providence um, You can see the providence of God all the way through it Esther chapter 1 And I want to read verses 1 through 9 Hear the word of God now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus This was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign he made a feast for all his officials and servants, powers of Persia and Media, the nobles, and the princes of the provinces being before him, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan the citadel from great to small in the court of the garden of the king's palace There were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars and the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster turquoise and white and black marble and they served drinks and golden vessels each vessel being different from the other with royal wine in abundance according to the generosity of the king in accordance with the law the drinking was not compulsory for so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus amen father God as we look at this history book uh, we recognize that it comes from your hand and it is a history book designed for our instruction our edification and I pray that you would enable me to preach your word faithfully clearly and that each one of us would come away rejoicing in the provision that you have for us we pray in Jesus name amen you may be seated <clears throat> those of you who have been talking with me about the uh, book of Esther know that this has been a very perplexing study for me uh, I thought that it was uh, going to have some difficulties of uh, research that were going to be required, but I hadn't anticipated how many controversies I was going to run up against, not the least of which is who is the Ahasuerus who is in this book. And um, when you read the scriptural time references, you will find that the, uh, the current one does have problems and even the Xerxes advocates who most current scholars say it uh, was King Xerxes even they admit uh, it, it really is difficult to fit all of the different facts uh, in and I'm a person who cannot rest until I see all of the pieces fitting together and so I just kept studying and it was not until I finished studying the histories and the chronologies that uh, the establishment has uh, uh, come to and I began looking at some of the revisionist uh, histories and chronologies that I began to see how this book beautifully fits together and then I found that these revisionist scholars actually were basing much of their conclusions on the older writings of people like Anstey and uh, Bishop Usher who by the way was a brilliant theologian uh, just a tremendous tremendous Calvinistic scholar but uh, people like Bishop Lloyd and Sir Isaac uh, Newton uh, you may not have realized that Sir Isaac Newton was a theologian. Uh, he was. 
Uh, most people uh, remember him as being one of the greatest scientific minds that ever existed in the era of science. But he had a brilliant mind when it came to history and when it came to theology. And he wrote a number of, um, uh, of books. And he was helpful, especially in the areas of Ezra and Nehemiah, and trying to figure out the chronologies that were, that were there. Two modern writers that I also agree on when it comes to chronology of Esther, uh, not in necessarily other areas, but in Esther, was James Jordan. And uh, to a far greater degree, uh, it was um, Floyd Nolan Jones, who wrote a masterful book on chronology, a pretty thick book, uh, back in 1999. And I just found him extremely helpful, and he got me researching and uh, some other areas uh, related to the book of Esther. Now, I do not know any other way of dealing with this book than to just begin a sermon in a very odd kind of a way uh, to give some of the background to this book. Because if we do not understand, uh, for example, who the Xerxes, I mean, who the Ahasuerus was that is in this book, we are not going to properly interpret the book as a whole. And uh, the writer to Esther, he obviously wants us to know who this Ahasuerus is. He goes to great lengths to spell out exactly the, uh, the, the character of this Ahasuerus so that we will not be uh, confused. And so what I thought I would do is to give to you kind of an abbreviated uh, outline of some of the ways in which I just weeded out the different possibilities that were, that were out there. And uh, let's see, why don't we take the bottom of that off. And I'm going to get my pen. If you could get that going for me, that would be, that would be helpful. Let me list the candidates for you. There are six plausible candidates that have been given for who this Ahasuerus is. And uh, they, uh, they range over quite a wide range of years. There are actually more than these six, but uh, most of the extra ones uh, well, all of the extra ones just do not, um, do not fit uh, the, uh, the book very well, and almost nobody gives them any, any, um, any credence. And so I'm going to give you a, uh, an abbreviated outline of uh, who some of these are. The first one here is Astyages, and uh, you've got the, the dates there. Uh, e. Faustich did a fascinating study where he claims that Astyages was Darius the Mede of Daniel, chap yeah, yeah, Daniel, you know, that uh, uh, the book of Daniel starts with, and that he's also the husband of Esther. Now, I do not believe that he is either of those, but he gave some really fascinating insights and dug up all kinds of archaeological facts and historical facts that uh, were very helpful. The next one on the list up there is Cyrus. And everybody knows about him. Then comes Cambyses, then Darius Hystaspes, then Xerxes, and then Artaxerxes Longamanus. And uh, right for now, I'm just going to have you ignore the, the stuff that is on the, well, maybe I won't. Maybe we'll go ahead and, and dive into that one. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to cross out any names if there is an evidence that strongly rules against them. And we're going to put a minus, or maybe I'll make a little X mark beside any names that have evidence that's maybe not conclusive, but strongly seems to indicate this is not a candidate. We'll put a check mark beside every name that has some evidence that is in their, fav in their favor. Now, if you take a look at the margin 
of verse 1, if you've got a New King James anyway, some of the other versions say the same thing. They say on Ahasuerus, generally identified with Xerxes I, 485 to 464 B.C. Now, you'll notice that that's just slightly off from the, uh, the dates that are on number 5 down here, one year off, and you'll find that even in establishment chronologies, depending on the author and which month that they're looking at, they'll be off by a year very frequently. So don't let that uh, trouble you because there's different dating systems. The Persians used one, the Egyptians and the Greeks uh, uh, used different uh, dating systems, and, and it can be off by just a few months. Okay, F first three verses of Esther 1 gives us a wealth of information that can help us to identify uh, who this, uh, this uh, person is. And the first verse says, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. We're going to start with the strongest argument for Xerxes. There are basically three arguments in favor of Xerxes. And the other two are equally in favor of uh, another candidate that we're going to be looking at in a moment. But this one really is a fairly strong argument. They say the Ahasuerus here is a title that must go with Xerxes. There was a, a guy by the name of Georg Friedrich uh, Grotefend, who in the early 1800s deciphered the Persian that was on an artifact that they dug up in the ruins at Persepolis. And uh, he discovered there that there was a son of Cyrus who has this name or this title, depending on who you're talking about, uh, by the name of Xerxes. And let me just quickly push this up here. Here's the spelling of the uh, name that was on the on the artifact, it's uh, Kishayarsha. That's the Persian name there, Kishayarsha. If you transliterate that into the Hebrew, the Hebrew letters stand exactly for the other one, but they're pronounced differently. It's Akashvarash. Akashvarash. Now, the transliteration into the English is Ahasuerus. And Grotefend said that the, 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 the makeup of that is very similar to Xerxes, and since this was supposed to be the son of Xerxes, therefore we ought to go with that. And ever since then, everybody has said Ahasuerus, well, not everybody, there's quite a stream of people that haven't, but the establishment has said that it is Xerxes. Now there's an alternative uh, theory, and the reason this theory ca came up is that Xerxes does not really have enough syllables uh, to really be a great translation from uh, Kashiarsha. And so they uh, put it into the two words and the meaning of them. You've got Kasha and then Yarsha, mighty king, that's the Persian. In the Hebrew, you have Aka, Shverash, and that's mighty king. And the English would be broken up into two words as well, Aha for mighty and uh, Suerus for king. Now, Jones says that if you're going to literally translate it, it shouldn't be Xerxes, it should be Artaxerxes. And so this could be a reference to the grandson of Darius, and in the ancient world, the term son frequently is used for a grandson. So it could just be a, a reference to Artaxerxes, or it could be a reference to Xerxes on that thing, and that was Artaxerxes is just one of the titles uh, that he has. And so... Um, what we are going to do, I could have accepted just the establishment view 
uh, Xerxes if there were not so many problems with that. And I want you to notice that in verse 1, the implication is that there are more than one Ahasuerus. Isn't that the way it comes across? Now, it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. He's saying, okay, yeah, there's more than one Ahasuerus, so I've got to define that this is the one that has all of these extra characteristics uh, that go along with it as well. Now, I'm going to get to the rest of that uh, sentence in a moment, but at this point, I just want you to see that the writer of Esther does not see there being only one person who has the title of Ahasuerus. So that means to me that we need to have other criteria. That name by itself does not, is not really a strong argument. And uh, actually, there are several other kings called Ahasuerus. If you want to write down Daniel 9, verse 1, you'll find that it calls the father of Darius, the Mede, this was before this Darius, calls him Ahasuerus. Furthermore, there are two ancient books, the Septuagint and First Esdras, that calls Darius Ahasuerus. Now, many people think this is just simply a, a throne title, but even if it's a proper name, we have at least two people on this list who meet the name of Ahasuerus, and so we're going to put a we're going to put a check mark beside each one. Xerxes and Darius Histaspes. And uh, the second clue that's given in verse 1 is that the particular Ahasuerus that he is talking about ruled over India. Okay, well, this automatically rules out the first three candidates here. We're going to put a cross through each of these because India was not conquered until Darius Hystaspes. And so that completely rules the others out. But these guys fit, so we'll put a check mark beside their name. And actually, since Artaxerxes was on the previous point, we'll put a check mark beside him as well. The third clue is that he reigned over Ethiopia. Now, this rules out the first two because it was Cambyses who conquered Egypt and Ethiopia, so those two have two strikes against them. And then the fourth clue, oh yeah, and we've got to put a check mark beside these other guys because they, they all had Ethiopia within their, within their reign. The fourth clue is that he reigned over 127 provinces. There is only one candidate who meets that evidence, I believe. The only ancient historical reference that we have to any of these kings reigning over 127 provinces is Darius Histaspes. And uh, first Esdras uh, uh, talks about that. That was written in the uh, second century. It says he had 127 satrapies. And so we're going to put a, a check mark beside Darius Histaspes here. Uh, there is a, a reference that he had that. And um, some of the other positions will plea bargain on this one. For example, Faustich says, well, granted, Daniel 9 says that Astyages only had 120 provinces, but that's pretty close to 127, and maybe he got some more later on. But we don't have any historical re reference to his having conquered any others uh, later on. But more importantly, the writer of the book of Esther seems to be implying in verse 1, there's only one candidate who meets all of this evidence, right? And so I would say that it has to be a mark against uh, 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 Astyages uh, for sure. 
and so let's uh, let's cross him out if you look in daniel chapter 9 and verse 1 sometime uh, you will see there that darius cyrus and most scholars nowadays and i i tend to concur with them believe that darius the mede was the same person as cyrus um uh, cyrus um had 120 satrapies or provinces and everybody agrees that that's a reference so i think we have to cross him out then cambyses he gained two more provinces he conquered ethiopia and egypt that brings it up to 122 right but that's not enough so we're going to cross out cambyses uh, Darius Hystaspes conquered five more, added five more provinces. Well, 122 plus five is 127. So we've got actually several independent witnesses to the fact that Darius Hystaspes um, uh, fits the evidence. So we're going to put a check mark beside, beside him for the other evidence that's been given. Xerxes does not fit this evidence because as soon as he came to the throne, uh, there were rebellions around the empire, and he began losing provinces. Now, some people who are ad, uh, Xerxes advocates say that, um, you know, we're a little bit in the dark. We know that every reference to how many provinces Xerxes had is far below 127, but maybe he got more later on. We're not in the dark. We know right from the beginning of his reign that he lost uh, some of the provinces. And so this is a clear mark against Xerxes. It's also a mark against uh, Artaxerxes Longamanus. There's only one candidate that fits the evidence of everything that's in that verse, that he ruled over Ethiopia, ruled over India, and he had 127 provinces. Now, if you look at verse 2, it gives us another hint, another clue. It says, In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel. Now, commentaries are generally agreed that it was Darius Hystaspes who actually built the palace and began, you know, having the reign be in Shushan, uh, uh, Shushan Palace. So that rules out automatically the people who were before him. So we're going to put some more marks against those earlier ones. Um, only Xerxes, Darius, and Artaxerxes uh, fit the evidence of actually being having a palace in Shushan. Susa is another term for it. But I'm not going to put a check mark beside Xerxes. I'm going to put one beside Darius. And I'm going to tell you why I can't put one beside Xerxes and Artaxerxes there. It's because from the histories and commentators all agree on this, after, in the later part of Darius's reign and all of the kings after, they did not summer in Shushan. They didn't spend their summer there because it was way too hot. Instead, they summered in Persepolis. But Darius, during the whole period of time that, that uh, this book is going on, he's building his palace in Persepolis. He couldn't live there, so he had to endure the hot summers that were, that were uh, in that uh, city. Now, it's true that the time references in the book of Esther are mostly in the winter and uh, in the springtime when it's a little bit cooler. But if you look in chapter 8, it shows the scribes working with the king Ahasuerus, and it implies they've been there for some time. And uh, the date that's given in verse 9 is the 23rd of Sivan, which in Xerxes' reign would be June 25, and the other reigns would be either late June 
or early July, and so was there during the summertime. So again, while the evidence does not rule out Xerxes, it's, um, it's circumstantial evidence, uh, I think it really is a black mark in his favor, so I'm, I'm going to be really nice. It should be a check, it should be a mark against him, I would say, um, because where Xerxes should be is in Persepolis during this time, according to everything we know in history, but he was not. But I'm going to be very kind to Xerxes and only give him an X. But I do need to give another mark for Darius here. Okay. Another hint, which is not definitive, but which favors Darius, is that verses 2 through 3 imply that this king Ahasuerus was a king before he sat on the throne of his kingdom, and he so sat in the third year. It's very odd language. Uh, notice that the word that in the beginning of verse 3 is in italics. That means that it's not in the Hebrew, it's supplied. So if we remove the that, and if we remove the parenthetical statement that shows where his throne was, here's how it would read. It says, he sat on the throne of his kingdom in the third year of his reign. Now, I'm not going to rule anybody out. I'm not going to mark anybody out on this. But if this implication is correct, uh, then it fits Darius perfectly because from the moment he inherited the kingdom, he was off fighting wars because there were rebellions everywhere. The first two years of his reign, he wasn't in Shushan. He was everywhere trying to reconquer the kingdom of Persia. It wasn't until the third year that he actually had time to uh, spend in the, in the kingdom. So I'm going to give another check mark to Darius here. To be fair to Xerxes, uh, even though he was in Shushan, uh, if he was this, uh, uh, this king here for the first three years, the three-year mark really does fit Xerxes rather well uh, because the next year he was off conquering Greece and uh, many commentators say perhaps during this uh, big feast he was bringing together all the noblemen trying to raise up the support that he needed. That also fits Darius because in his fourth year he was off doing campaigns as well. So we're going to make that a wash and we're going to give a check mark to both, uh, both Xerxes and, and Darius. Now bear with me, this is so important. If I cannot demonstrate that Darius is the king, Ahasuerus of this book, a lot of the conclusions I'm going to be coming to later on in the book, you're going to be scratching your head and wondering, well, is that really true? You know, my margin says that most people say it's Xerxes. I want to nail this down uh, good and solid. Verse 3 gives another hint. Uh, if you look in the middle there, it speaks of the powers of Persia and Media. And I want you to notice the word order there. Persia comes first. And this is consistent through the book of Daniel with one exception. In the last chapter of Daniel, I mean of, uh, of Esther, it refers to the ancient chronicles of, the, of, the Me uh, of Media and Persia. Now that makes sense because the ancient chronicles, they can't change that and the Medes came first and the Persians second. But the reason that this word order is very significant is that during the time that the Medes were in dominance, Daniel 6 and following, consistently, all the time, it speaks of them as being Media and Persia or the Medes and the Persians several times in the book of Daniel, and that's the only way that it occurs. And so this difference here shows that this must be during a time when the Persians are in dominance, and so we're going to scratch out Astyages based on that evidence. Um, Again, you're going to see how important this is a little bit later on. 
And I'm going to skip over some proofs of uh, Darius because they're circumstantial, and I don't want to bore you with this, but um, look down at verse 14. Verse 14, those closest to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meriz, Marcina, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. Now, uh, almost any commentary you look at will agree that Darius was the first one to start this tradition. And the way it started was that in order to gain his kingdom, he had to make an alliance with seven noblemen. And part of the agreement was that they would become princes and they would broker, they would share power with him. Uh, we have no evidence that it continues later on into Xerxes or Artaxerxes, but that's not a mark against them. I think it's dangerous to do any argument from silence. We just got to have positive evidence. So I'm going to put another check mark for, uh, for Darius here. <coughs> uh, look at chapter 10. This is a very important time frame. Chapter 10 and verse 1 of Esther. It says, And King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea. This clearly rules out everyone before Darius because Darius was the first one to impose tribute. So we're going to put a cross mark uh, through uh, each of those names there. And uh, it also rules out Xerxes because uh, this uh, chapter, chapter 10, clearly occurs after the 12th year of whoever Ahasuerus is. And uh, uh, that's the time that he is said to impose or begin tribute on the islands. Well, number one, Xerxes did not impose tribute or begin tribute on anybody. He inherited the tribute that his father had already imposed uh, when he was uh, uh, ruling with him. So that's a mark against Xerxes. And secondly, he couldn't collect any tribute from the islands because in his 12th year, he lost all of the islands. And so there was no tribute. There were no islands that he was, would be able to tax. So that's another strike uh, through Xerxes. Uh, one commentator just said, we lack historical evidence. Uh, we don't know that he maybe didn't at some point collect uh, tribute, but we do have historical evidence. We are not in the dark like some people uh, claim there's clear historical evidence he lost all of those islands. Now there's a whole lot more against Xerxes. Let me read to you from an ancient history book called First Esdras. It was written in the second century BC, and I want you to turn to Esther chapter one, and I want you to read in Esther one verses one through two because the language is so so similar to what is going on there. Okay, here's how Esdras says it. Now King Darius. Notice it's not Xerxes or Artaxerxes or Cambyses or any of the others. It says, Now King Darius gave a great banquet for all that were under him and all that were born in his house and all the nobles of Media and Persia and all the satraps and generals and governors that were under him and the 127 satrapies from India to Ethiopia. I hope you're beginning to see there is overwhelming evidence in favor of uh, Darius. In fact, that is such a strong testimony, I think that has to be a cross out as well of any of the other candidates because I don't think you could get a stronger parallel to what is going on in Esther 1 and verses 1 uh, through 2. You know, it seems uh, one of the things I've 
discovered, I think maybe I mentioned that earlier, the more I've read on chronologies, the more I've realized the older chronologers many times are more reliable because they have tended to be driven by the biblical evidence and then interpreting the secular based on that. What's happening even with conservatives nowadays is they'll take secular evidence, even though it's contradictory with other secular evidence, and they will use that to reinterpret the Bible. And that's the wrong way. There's only one infallible document in life, and it's, uh, it's the Scripture. Now, there's much more uh, against Xerxes. Turn to chapter 2 and verses 5 through 7. <clears throat> chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. It says, In Shushan the citadel there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Now, the New King James Version puts a period there, but most versions do not. They continue it on as one sentence, so you could put a comma there, and then they do not begin. Most versions do not put Kish at the beginning of verse 6. Notice it's italicized. It's not in the Hebrew. If you look in the margin, you'll see literally it's who. It's who. So here's how it would read. A Benjamite who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And Mordecai, or he, literally, had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father uh, nor mother. Even the strongest Xerxes advocate will admit this is strong evidence against their position because the Hebrew here makes it seem very clear that Mordecai was the one who was taken into captivity under Jeconiah, but they can't abide that because if Xerxes is the right interpretation, this makes Mordecai a minimum. Even if he's a newborn baby when he was taken into exile, it makes him a minimum of 113 years old at the beginning of the story, and he's 125 years old when he becomes prime minister. Now, that's possible. That's not the worst of the difficulties. Think of the age of Esther, okay? The age of Esther, even if Esther is 65 years younger than Mordecai, her uncle, which it's within the realm of possibility that it could be that much distant, as many kids as they had stretched out. Even if she's 65 years younger than Mordecai, she is a minimum of 55 years old when she won the beauty contest. Uh, and it's just, the <laughs> you know, it's the ridiculousness of that age that makes people say, well, if it's under Xerxes, the normal translation just can't be right. We've got to do something with that. And this is the first thing that really troubled me. I studied and I studied and I studied the Hebrew there, and I just could not see how it could be the way people... Uh, take it. Listen to what some commentators say about such a translation. Jones says, Only by a tortured, forced, grammatical construction could this sentence ever be applied to his great-grandfather Kish. By the way, it's going to be more than a great-grandfather. It's his further ancestor. But not only that, he points out that the he in verse 7 would most naturally refer in the Hebrew to the same who of verse 6. So if they take that as Kish, that means Kish brought up Hadassah, which is an impossibility. So they've got to do violence to the Hebrew twice. In verse 7, they've got to substitute, instead of putting a, a he, they've got to make it different, a different antecedent. So just on age alone, I think this is a clear uh, strike against Xerxes. And even the Xerxes advocates recognize this is a huge problem for their 
for their theory. Now, on the Darius view, using the same generous figures that we gave to uh, Xerxes, um, Esther would be 17 years old when she won the beauty contest. Now, which position sounds better to you? Uh, I think there's only one that really makes any sense whatsoever. And so we have to give another, another check mark for, for Darius Histaspes. Now, I've got other evidence that I'm not going to bore you with, but one last item that every Xerxes advocate wrestles with is who in the world is Vashti and Esther? It just does not seem to fit in with the queen uh, of Xerxes at all. Uh, it, it really is a, a major problem for them, and the commentaries admit it, uh, the Xerxes advocates. Amestris was Xerxes' wife, and she is said by the ancient histories to be a queen much longer than Vashti was a queen. Uh, she seems to be along, uh, 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 around after that. Some have said, well, maybe Vashti slash Amestris um, was deposed for a while and was divorced, and then Esther was either killed or maybe she died uh, early, and then she came back into power. But that doesn't fit the, uh, the evidence uh, either. Not only is Amestris, some people say Amestris is Esther. I can't imagine how that could be the case because number one, Amestris was alive before um, uh, she comes to the throne in 515 BC and she's uh, uh, alive uh, after that. So it, it just, that doesn't make sense. But secondly, she was a debauched, cruel and sadistic woman she tortured people. She, she was a really uh, a weird lady. And she was a Persian. She was not a Jewess. And so I think this is a major problem for Xerxes. Did I already cross out Xerxes on this one? Okay, let's cross them out. Did I give a check mark for Darius? I've lost track. Okay. We'll give a check mark for Darius because it fits Darius perfectly. And um, uh, not only did he have many wives and concubines, but he started with his brother's wife. And uh, after the birth of Xerxes, he replaced that queen with another woman who resembles Esther in four ways. First of all, she was loved by Darius, Herodotus says, more than any of the other virgins, any of the other wives that he ran across. That parallels what's said about Esther. Secondly, she replaces the former king, so that's a parallel. Thirdly, Esther's name, Hadassah, is virtually the same as not the second wife, but the first wife. That's Hadassah. This is Hadassah, and so it's a, a dental, but it's a T instead of a D, almost the same. And what Brosius' recent uh, history of the women of the Archimenid period says is that Herodotus, who wasn't even in Persia, he gets the women's names mixed up many times. And so it's possible he inverted. Fourthly, uh, intensive studies have shown that even though we know the that he had another wife before the second one that was a queen, the Persian records at Persopolis have been completely expunged of that name. And so what modern people have said, uh, modern establishment people have said that uh, the first queen must have died, had to have died before 515, uh, BC, sometime before that. Well, 515 is when Esther comes to the throne, right? So again, it fits perfectly the Darius model. Definitely a fit on all of those things. And I did put a check mark for him on that one, I think. Okay. 
Now, in my mind, there is absolutely no question whatsoever that Darius was the king. I'm not going to use if anymore throughout the series. I'm just going to refer to him as uh, Darius. And uh, once you begin to see that it's Darius, then it perfectly blends in with the prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah, Ezra and Nehemiah, fill those out beautifully. In fact, uh, the prophecies of those two minor prophets begin two years before the events of this book, and many of the puzzles in Ezra and Nehemiah are completely solved. Now, what modern chronologists, they've got a problem that the older chronologists did not have. In the olden days, people said Ezra and Nehemiah were one story that happened at the same time with Ezra focusing on the temple and Nehemiah focusing as a civil ruler on the walls of Jerusalem. What they have done now uh, is that they have separated the two by 90 years. So you've got the strange anomaly in that book that there are two Ezras who are priests and two Nehemiahs who are civil rulers, and there are several people and two genealogies separated by 90 years that have the same name. To me, I just can't buy that, and I never have been able to buy that. And so Anstey and Bishop Usher and others, I think, are much more correct when they say there is no... And the reason that we can see that is because, is because if, if this is true, that the, the Persian Kshah Yarsha and Akash Verash is the same as Artaxerxes in the Greek, then the Artaxerxes in Ezra and Nehemiah is Darius. And everything's solved. It's beautifully solved. And um, finally... The purpose for this book is opened up in a magnificent way. It shows the fulfillment of prophecies given in Haggai and in Zechariah of the expansion of the kingdom among the Gentiles. And at the same time, it gives tremendous hope and encouragement to the people who are back in Israel. Why? Because they've been opposed by civil authorities, and they're going to continue to be opposed. And what God is doing is he's saying, look, I was able to handle uh, Darius. I was able to handle Haman, and I can handle any circumstances that come into your lives. A tremendously encouraging book for Ezra and Nehemiah and for um, Zerubbabel and some of the other Jews that were associated with that. I believe that the Feast of Purim is a for prophetic foreshadowing of the last days that are still ahead of us, the last days of the New Covenant, and that that prophetic foreshadowing feast jumps right out of the material that's in this book. It all neatly fits together. And so what I'm going to do, I'm going to read through the book, and I'm going to give key events that are interlaced, and it's a fun story, so I just want you to sit back and enjoy it. I, I should mention one other fact. I'm sorry. One more fact. In Ezra 2, verse 2, and in Nehemiah 7, verse 7, it tells us that Mordecai accompanied Ezra and Nehemiah when the... All of the exiles returned, many of the exiles returned under Cyrus. Now, a lot of people interpret this book as if it's a polemic against Mordecai, Esther, and other Jews who refused to go to Israel. No, 17 years before this, he had gone to Israel with Ezra and Nehemiah. We know that Nehemiah had to make several trips back, right? Three or four uh, because of his responsibilities, and Mordecai no doubt had the, uh, the same responsibilities. Some people uh, say that one of the reasons he had to come back was uh, to take the letter in Exodus chapter 4 and make a petition since he had connections in the court. Uh, but it was probably while he was in Israel that he adopted Esther. So anyway, let me go ahead and read through this and then we're done. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this was the Ahasuerus who ruled over the 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. 
In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan the citadel, that in the third year of his reign he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him. This is 519 B.C. This was the year that Xerxes was born. So maybe this was a big birthday party. He was the heir apparent, and he was declared to be that right from birth. They knew that was going to be the case. Now, it could have been that it, he's trying to, you know, raise support for a campaign. But 519 B.C. Verse 4. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all, and when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan the citadel from great to small in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars, and the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble. And they served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory, for so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. By the way, this fits in with everything we know from Brosius's magnificent study, that the queen's under the Archimenids really did have a lot of freedom and did have a lot of um, independence. Many times they had their, well, I think in every case, they had their own properties, they had their own servants, their own uh, financial dealings, and uh, he or she is um, uh, uh, hosting her own feast. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Ab Abagtha, Zethar and Carcas, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Esther before the king wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore the king was furious, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice, those closest to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Marcina, and Numukim, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. What shall we do to Queen Vashti according to law? Because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs. And Mamukin answered before the king and the princes, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women so that they will despise their husbands and their eyes when they report, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus, there will be excessive contempt and wrath. If it pleases the king, boy, it sounds like these guys were real secure in their relationships, right? <laughs> uh. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it will not be altered that Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. When the king's decree, which he will make, is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. And the reply pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Mamukin. 
Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house and speak in the language of his own people. Now we have a break of three years, during which time he is campaigning against the Egyptians. He comes back, there's no wife, okay? And he maybe regrets what he did, we're not sure, but it starts in chapter 2, saying, After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's servants who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan the citadel into the women's quarters under the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let beauty preparations be given them. Then let young women, let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This thing pleased the king, and he did so. In Shushan the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And he had brought up Hadassah, that is, Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely. By the way, that was probably during the time when he was, I think I mentioned that, when he was in Israel, that he adopted her. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So it was when the king's command and decree were heard and when many young women were gathered at Shushan the citadel under the custody of Hegai, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace into the care of Hegai, the custodian of the women. Now, one year later, Esther goes to Is- I mean, Ezra goes to Israel, and he takes a strong stand against voluntary mixed marriages. We'll look at a later time as to whether this was voluntarily entered into, like some people say, or she was trying to advance her position, or whether she was taken like uh, Abraham's wife was taken away from him. But in any case, it goes on, verse 9, Now the young woman was to her besides her allowance. Then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace. And he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. Esther had not revealed her people or family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. And that does seem like a, a compromise, where she's being ashamed of her identity. But perhaps not. There are other explanations. Every day, Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. Each young woman's turn came to go in to King Ahasuerus after she had completed 12 months' preparation according to the regulations for the women. For thus were the days of their preparation apportioned, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. Thus prepared, each young woman went into the king, and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the king's palace. In the evening she went, and in the morning she returned to the second house of the women to the custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch who kept the concubine. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and called her for her by name. And when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Hegai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. 
The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants, and he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of the king. Now this is in 515 B.C. A few months later, Ezra is going to be going to Israel. You can read about that in Ezra 7, uh, verses 8 through 9. Verse 19. When virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai sat within the gate. Now I want you to notice that the contest is finished, but there's still virgins that are being gathered to this king. That, to me, that implies they're not trying out for the queen's spot. You know, maybe they weren't trying out at all. You know, they were just taken. Okay. Now, now Esther had not revealed her family and her people just as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. In those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Perish, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. You know, in the book of Esther, no detail is insignificant. They all weave together in God's providence. He may have been frustrated, or Esther may have been. How come nobody noticed, you know, that he did this? And here Haman is elevated, and Mordecai is not, but it's God's purpose. Chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him and all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Now we looked last week at why he transgressed the king's command. In Exodus 17 and in Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 through 19, God had specifically forbidden anyone to do anything but fight against the Amalekites until they were wiped out. So he would have been disobeying a clear command of God. I totally disagree with James Jordan on this. He says he should have obeyed the king. He was quite willing to bow before anybody else. He was not willing to bow before this Amalekite because God's commands take precedence over the king's. Verse 4. Now what happened when they spoke to him daily and he would not listen to them that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand for Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage Haman was filled with wrath but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus the people of Mordecai. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, lots, before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. You know, this is really remarkable. He is throwing dice to find out which is the lucky day that he can kill him on. And, okay, day one, okay, dice are not lucky. And he's going through the whole calendar, and there isn't any lucky day, you know, for this guy until finally he comes to the end of the year. It's almost like a miracle that God is performing, not allowing these dice to fall on any of the earlier days. Anyway, take a look at verse 8. 
Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other peoples, and they do not keep the king's law. Therefore, it is fitting for the king to it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. And he would pay it pay that from the plunder he would get from the Jews. Verse ten. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money and the people are given to you to do with them as seem good to you. As recalled in the thirteenth month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded, to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all people, to every province according to its script, and to every people in their language, in the name of King Ahasuerus it was written and sealed with the king's signet. I want you to notice the incredible freedom he gave to Haman. He didn't even have to have Darius sign it. He wrote it in his name. He sealed it in his name. Darius maybe never even saw that document. And this, by the way, may explain Ezra chapter 4, why Darius opposed the building of the temple. Earlier, he had commanded that it be built. Later, he commands it be, it be built. And then here's this strange reference. He's opposing the building of the temple. Well, it may be just like Darius the Mede got fooled by those other counselors. He got fooled into allowing Haman to do whatever he did in his, in his name. Okay, verse 13. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. A copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province, being published for all people, that they should be ready for that day. James Jordan says this was the fulfillment of the prophecy against Gog and Magog, where all the nations are gathered against Israel, but they end up being destroyed themselves. Whether that's true or not, uh, verse 15, uh, the couriers went out hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. Why were they perplexed? Because this was so uncharacteristic of Darius. Darius was not a follower of Marduk or any of the other gods of Babylon. He was a Zoroastrian. He was a monotheist. James Jordan points out his beliefs were a whole lot closer to the Jewish religion than any of the other uh, pagan ones were. So he was very sympathetic right from the start to the Jews. And this is so uncharacteristic. They're perplexed as to what's going on. Chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was a great mourning among, among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, and the king was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments. Did I say king? The queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called Hathok, one of the king's eunuchs, whom he had appointed to attend her, and she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. So Hathok went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him 
all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So Hathak returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court of the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. Now, I should mention, the reason Darius gave that rule, that law, was because there had been so many attempted assassinations. I mean, he was paranoid of, of being killed, and so he was trying to make sure everyone was screened. The reason Esther is so nervous is not only because she knows Vashti has been killed before her, but this is going to be an embarrassment to the king. She is flat out contradicting, asking him to reverse something that's been written in his name to every province in the whole empire. I mean, this is pretty serious stuff. You can see why she is nervous. Um, verse 12, so they told Mordecai Esther's words. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place but you and your father's house will perish. Yet, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. Now what happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight and the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter and the king said to her, what do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. So Esther answered, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. At the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom, it shall be done. Now whether she loses heart or courage or whatever, we're not told. But by God's providence, she, she postpones it another day. Then Esther answered and said, My petition and request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet, which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Verse 9. So Haman went out that day, joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and called for his friends and his wife Zeresh. And then Haman told them of his great riches. I wonder how many times they had had to put up with listening to this blowhard here. 
Then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him, and how he advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Moreover, Haman said, Besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared, and tomorrow I'm again invited by her along with the king. Yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. And then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows be made, fifty cubits high, and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hung, hanged on it, and then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. That night the king could not sleep, so, no one, so one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And then the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. So the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. I just love the irony of the Lord in his providence. The king's servants said to him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king asked him, What shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman thought in his heart, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman answered the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let his, this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback throughout the city square, and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested, and do so for Mordecai the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. So Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai, and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther, and on the second day at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Up to half the kingdom. It shall be done. Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given to me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So... King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther pleading for his life, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. When the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, 
Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, Will you also assault the queen while I am in the house? As the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now Harbona, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look, the gallows fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. Chapter 8. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told him how he was related to her. Um, in fact, you know, the, the fact that the king did not know that he was related to uh, Esther, to me, shows that this, like some commentators say, Mordecai was trying to advance his position with the king by giving Esther. Uh, I just can't buy that. It, he doesn't even know about that. I don't see that he got any benefit from it. So the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now Esther spoke again to the king, fell down at his feet, and implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman the Agagite and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews. And the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king and said, if it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the thing seems right to the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who were in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay his hand on the Jews. You yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews as you please in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring for whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. You know, it's just amazing that he's willing to delegate such powers, even his signet ring, you know, to people when it can't be revoked. So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, and the princes of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all, to every province in its own script, to every people in their own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed it with the king's signet ring, and sent letters by couriers on horseback, riding on royal horses, bred from swift steed. By these letters, the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and to protect their lives, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions. On one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is in the month of Adar, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province and published for all people so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers who rode on royal horses went out, hastened and pressed on by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Shushan the citadel. So Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white with great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple, and the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. The Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor, and in every province and city, wherever the king's command and the decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. Then many of the people of the land became Jews, because fear of the Jews fell upon them. 
Now in the twelfth month, that is, the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. On the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred in that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. The Jews gathered together in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could withstand them because fear of them fell upon all the people. And all the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and all those doing the king's work helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's palace, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for this man Mordecai became increasingly prominent. Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. And in Shushan the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Also Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Parasa, Adalia, Aridatha, Parmashta, Arisai, Aridai, and Vajasatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, they killed. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder. On that day, the number of those who were killed in Shushan the citadel was brought to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in Shushan the citadel and the ten sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? It shall be granted to you. Or what is your further request? It shall be done. Then Esther said, If it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who were in Shushan to do again tomorrow according to today's decree, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. The decree was issued in Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. And the Jews who were in Shushan gathered together again on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar and killed three hundred men at Shushan, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. The remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives, had rest from their enemies, and killed 75,000 of their enemies, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were at Shushan assembled together on the 13th day as well as on the 14th, and on the 15th of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who dwell in the unwalled town celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday for sending presents to one another. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy from them and from mourning to a holiday. By the way, the Jews say that uh, Mordecai was a prophet. That they should make them days of feasting and joy, of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted the custom which they had begun, as Mordecai had written to them, because Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them and had cast poor, that is, the lot, to consume them and destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letter that this wicked plot which Haman had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. So they called these days Purim after the name Pur. Therefore, because of all the words of this letter, what they had seen concerning this matter and what had happened to them, the Jews established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants and all who would join them that without fail, they should celebrate these two days every year according to the written instructions and according to the prescribed time. 
and that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city, that these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews, and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter about Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, with words of peace and truth, to confirm these days of Purim at their appointed time, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had prescribed for them, and as they had decreed for themselves and their descendants concerning the matters of their fasting and lamenting. So the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written in the book. And King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea. Now all the acts of his power and his might and the account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus and was great among the Jews and well received by the multitude of his brethren seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. And this then sets the context for Nehemiah's request to go back to Israel in 502 B.C. Um, a cross-reference, Nehemiah 2.6 mentions the queen sitting beside Darius when he asks permission to go. I believe that's the last reference in the Bible to the book of Esther. And so uh, this is a book, this is twice as long of a sermon as I almost ever give, but I wanted at least once for you guys to get the whole scope of the story, because I know several of you have not read the book. But uh, a marvelous book on providence, and I think we're going to get many good lessons from it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, your word. Uh, we uh, receive it as uh, inspired by you and written for our edification. And I pray that as we look into it in the coming weeks, that it would be something that would uh, build us up and encourage us in the faith. In Jesus' name, amen.